I want to welcome you to ACF here this morning. If you are new, if you're visiting us with us from out of town, we're so glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. It's good to be here with you today, especially having been out last week. Uh, if you showed up here at the Hub last week, our deepest, sincerest apologies. Uh, we were away, ACF was away at our spring retreat, and uh, God did some incredible things during that weekend. But it is good to be back together worshiping with our extended church family here on campus. And uh, I don't know if you realize we are nearing the end of another academic year, another semester. For those of you who are, who've got your countdown clock uh, ticking in motion, we are 15 days away uh, till the end of classes. Can someone say amen this morning? Hallelujah. God is good, right? 15 days left. Spring feels like it's upon us, right? It's, it's, it's a good time. In fact, after today, um, we only have two more Sunday services left in the hub, and uh, hard to believe, two more Sunday services left, which by the way, the very last Sunday, two weeks from today, is Easter Sunday. Now, I know some of you have plans to go back home and, and spend uh, Easter uh, celebration with your family, but if you're around, we'd love for you to join us, but I don't want you to just join us. I want you to invite a friend. This, this is a great opportunity to invite some unbelieving non-church friends to, to come on out and to join in the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what I'd suggest. Don't just invite your friends to church. Invite them to lunch after church. Invite them to Easter brunch. If you have Easter brunch plans, invite them out to that. Uh, I find that it's always an, easier to witness to our friends over a meal. And, uh, and that's not just for Easter Sunday. That's every Sunday. If you're going to invite a friend to church, take them out to lunch. I mean, they, they, they went out of their way to come to church with you. The least you could do is treat them to lunch, right? And so take them out and um, trust that God may or may not open up some conversations and some avenues to dialogue there. And so go ahead and do that. Also, we'll be having a baptism service. Some of you already know this. And uh, at the end of the semester, if you have never taken that next step in baptism, if you're a follower of Jesus but have never been baptized, uh, we'd love for you to consider getting baptized. Baptism is an outward expression of this inward change, inward reality of what God has done inside of us. And so uh, we are commanded and we are called to celebrate the new life that God has brought about us. One of the ways we do that is through baptism. And so uh, if you've never been baptized, please come and see me after service. If you have any questions on what it means to be baptized, please come and see me after service. We'd love to talk with you about that. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question here this morning. Have you ever received a wake-up call of some sort? Some of you, I see you're yawning. Some of you need a wake-up call this morning, right? Like, say, some of you, right, how many of you have received a wake-up call? Maybe it came through a, a text from a friend saying, get your butt up so that we can go to this thing and, and whatever the thing is, right? Or, or maybe it was a, a growing up as a young teenage kid, maybe that wake-up call came from a parent yelling for you to get up, it's time for school, come on downstairs and all that. A wake-up call maybe in that way. For those of you who stayed in uh, hotels, maybe you've used this feature that these hotels have to offer. They, you, you, can, you can notify the front desk to ring your phone in your room the next morning for a wake-up call, right? Now, here's the thing about wake-up calls. No matter how it's done, no matter who does it, no matter the context, wake-up calls are the worst, 
right? Like wake-up calls are the worst. It's an absolute miserable thing to be woken up from a deep slumber. There's not much worse in life than, than the rude awakening of an alarm clock that goes, right? How many of you have been to like a retreat or a camp? And you got that one kid who like set the alarm on like level 10 and it just wakes everyone up and you're like, shut that thing off. Yeah, I mean, you're, I mean, you're on a Christian camp, but you're about to scream expletives like, just turn that thing off, man. What, what is wrong with you? It's a rude awakening, right? Some of you are like, man, I know so. that happened to me just last week at ACF retreat, right? Like, yeah, yeah. or some of you, you know, you, you, you know, you get woken up from a, a shaking, you know, rude awakening, or, or worse yet, someone pulls the covers right off of you in the middle of a deep sleep. All of a sudden, you feel your body seize. You're like, what is happening to my body right now? Why are you pulling my covers off? Sometimes my wife does that to me every once in a, once in a while to wake me up. Wake-up calls. Today's passage that we're going to look at, Jesus, in some ways, he's pulling the covers right off of us. It's like in today's passage, it's like Jesus is sounding off the alarm to get us to pay close attention to wake up to a spiritual reality. And I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter 7 and see what Jesus has to say in hopes to waking us up. Starting at verse 21, we're only going to cover three verses today. But these verses have been known to be some of the most frightening words of Jesus. Jesus has said a lot of things, right? Like, we, we covered a lot of what Jesus said. But Bible scholars hone in on these three verses, and they say they believe that these three short verses are some of the most unsettling words ever uttered by Jesus. Let's see what he has to say. Matthew chapter 7, meet me at verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some translations say, away from me, you evildoers, or get out of my sight, you evil people. These are not light words to take lightly by our Lord, friends. Listen to what he says here. Let, let's unpack what Jesus seems to be getting at here with this wake-up call. He starts off by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And so you've got to imagine, he's looking out at the crowd. He's got a massive crowd on the side of this mountaintop, on, side of the, on the side of this hill. And he looks out and he says, listen, look, you know, I, I don't know if he gave a statistic, like one out of every five of you will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, I, I don't know what he said. But, but at the least, we know that he said this. Not everyone, all of you, like all of you are here listening to my words. Not every one of you who comes to me on that final day and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, remember, we've got to understand what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about heaven. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about your afterlife. Once your time on earth is up, he's talking about the afterlife. And he says the way to get to heaven may not be the way you always thought. You see, there were a group of folks during this time who believed that if they simply claimed to be part of God's family, if they talk the part, if they look the part, if they dress the part well... They must be a part. 
They must be part of God's family, and they would spend eternity in heaven with the Father. All you needed to do was check the box that says, Christian, I'm in. All you needed to do was declare him as Lord. You know, this reminds me of an episode of The Office, and uh, I want to share this brief uh, moment with you. Uh, For those of you who are not a fan of The Office, first of all, I apologize, but secondly, what is the matter with you? I mean, what, what, like, you, you have something wrong with your soul, like you, you need, so, so we'll pray for you if you need, but, but there's a clip in the office where Michael Scott was faced with uh, a, a personal financial crisis. He was dating Jan at the time, and, and being with Jan uh, brought about all this financial debt into his life, so much so that he had to pick up a second job as a telemarketer, you remember that, right? Like he's hiding out and, and leaving work early to go to, 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 to the second job. And, and dear Creed, he comes along and offers Michael a suggestion. He says, hey, Michael, you, you got to declare bankruptcy, right? Like, and he offers what Creed believes to be uh, some great advice. And uh, I want to show you the clip here. It's a real short clip, and uh, let's take a look here. Hey, cuz. Heard you're having money problems. No, you didn't. Listen, I got the answer. You declare bankruptcy, all your problems go away. Creed Bratton has never declared bankruptcy. When Creed Bratton gets in trouble, he transfers his debt to William Charles Schneider. How would that help, Creed? In Monopoly, you go bankrupt, you lose. You don't go by Monopoly, man. That game is nuts. Nobody just picks up get-out-of-jail-free cards. Those things cost thousands. That is a good point. Bankruptcy, Michael, is nature's do-over. It's a fresh start. It's a clean slate. Like the witness protection program. Exactly. I've always wanted to be in the witness protection program. Fresh start. No debts, no baggage. I've already got my name picked out. Lord Rupert Everton. I'm a, uh, a shipping merchant who raises fancy dogs. That's the life. I declare... Bankruptcy! Friends, Jesus is saying it is not enough to just declare, Lord, Lord. It's not enough for us as followers of Jesus to declare, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. That says nothing that does nothing. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. And he says, but. He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Church, here's the point. God is not looking for a declaration. He's looking for demonstration. He is not looking for a declaration. He is looking for demonstration. He's saying, you can declare, Lord, Lord, all you want. You can declare until you're blue in the face. But the real question that Jesus is pressing in here with is, is he really the Lord over your life? Is he really the Lord over your life? When he says, the one who does the will of my Father, you know how he said that just just at at that last clause? He's talking about people who don't just declare that he's Lord, but their lives demonstrate his lordship over their lives. That to be a Christian doesn't simply mean checking a box or self-identifying as as a Christian, but a Christian is someone who demonstrates that which he or she declares with his or her mouth. 
And so if you're going to declare Jesus as Lord, Lord, friends, there should be some evidence that he is actually Lord over your life. Now, I want to take a pause here for just a quick uh, sidebar here. This concept of lordship, right, like this concept of lordship might strike us as a bit odd in our modern-day context. You know, we sang it just a few moments ago. Jesus is our cornerstone. He is Lord of all. Now, for those of us who grew up in church, we're like, yeah, you know, that that makes sense. He's Lord of all. But but that's not a common human interaction that we see in contemporary modern day. Most of our human relationships don't have this lordship component. In other words, we don't try to lord over people, right? Like, we don't go around trying to be a lord over people. At least I don't think we do. And if you do, that that may explain why you might not have many friends, right? Like, because people generally don't want to be lorded over, right? They're not looking for people to be a lord over them. Rather, they're looking for friends who will walk alongside them, not a lord who will rule over them. Now, here's the interesting thing about Jesus. Jesus is actually both. Jesus is that friend who walks alongside us every step of our journey, and yet he is also the king who is Lord over us. And if we claim him as Lord, there should be some proof that he is who, he, who we declare him to be. Now, can I just clarify something here real quickly before I move on? When we say demonstrate and, and, and there should be proof of Christ's lordship in your life, I am in no way suggesting that somehow by our works, that we earn our way into heaven, that somehow if we demonstrate enough spirituality, then maybe God will look upon our lives and say, yep, you're good, and you you demonstrate enough spirituality, and so you're you're granted access into the kingdom of heaven. Friends, that would be heretical. That is anti-gospel thinking. The truth is, the only thing we need to enter into the kingdom of heaven is to put our trust and faith in the finished work of Jesus, which he accomplished for us on the cross. But you got to understand what that means. It's easy to say that and miss the implications of that. You see, when we put our trust in Christ, what we're saying is, Jesus, I am now making you Lord over my life. You are now the most important person to me. You've got the final say in every aspect of my life, so much so that I am going to now reorient my life around you, Jesus, so that your opinion becomes now the most important opinion above all. That's how you come to do the will of the Father who is in heaven. You see, this isn't just about doing more spiritual things so that God looks upon you favorably and says, okay, now you can come and dine with me and feast with me. No, 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 no. This is when we understand that we have put our faith in Jesus, what we're effectively doing is making Jesus Lord over our lives so that his thoughts, his opinions, who he is becomes the most important thing about us. And out of that place, Because Jesus is the most important person, because his opinions matter the most, wouldn't you think that you would want to do the will of the Father who sent Jesus? That's where our our desire to do God's will comes into play. And so, friends, this isn't some kind of replacement of the gospel. This is simply aligning our declaration of the gospel with our demonstration of the gospel. This is through our, this is aligning what we declare with our lips, Lord, Lord, and what we demonstrate through our lives. Jesus, because you are Lord, it gives me great pleasure to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
You see the difference? I mean, this isn't, this isn't anti-gospel. This is the gospel at its heart. God is not looking for just declaration. He's looking for demonstration. And then he goes on, and he says, he points to that day on verse 22. He says, on that day, he's talking about the final judgment day, the day we will all face. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, friends, I don't know if you've ever tried to prove your worth to somebody, right? Like, uh, for instance, you have to do this a lot when applying for a job. For those of you who are graduating seniors, you may, you may have either done this or you're in the middle of doing this, right? Like, we're applying for these positions at companies and these corporations. You've got to, you know, you've got to prove to them why they should hire you, right? And so, incidentally, they ask questions like, tell us about your strengths. Tell us about your weaknesses. Tell us about your accomplishments, your areas of success, your, all your achievements and, and things of that nature. And I don't know about you, but I, I always find it a little bit odd to be so self-promoting, you know, to try to sell it. Let me, let me tell you how great I am. You know, like, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to put it on paper, I'm going to put it in bullet point, tell you how great I am. I always find that a little bit odd. But these companies, at the end of the day, they want to know that, if, that, that you're worth the hire, that you're actually worth hiring. In fact, maybe you have to even do that coming here to Penn State in your uh, college applications. Well, this is sort of what Jesus was getting at here. He's dealing with a group of people who are laying out all of their accomplishments and all of their achievements, and, he, and they're saying, Jesus, look, look how awesome I am. Look at all these things that, 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 I've, that I've done for you, that I've done in your name. Look at all these things that I've accomplished for you. And they're trying to prove that they're worthy of kingdom access. They're like, look, aren't you impressed, Jesus? Jesus says, no, no, because you're actually missing the point. Because the point that Jesus is trying to make here is God is not looking for a resume. He is looking for a relationship. God doesn't care about your resume. God doesn't, he's not going to stand at the pearly gates of heaven and wait with the clipboard and say, resume, please. Can I see what you've done for me? Can I see all the things that you've accomplished in my name? God is not looking for a resume. He is looking for a relationship. He's going to want to, he's going to be standing at the pearly gates, and he's going to want to see, do you actually know me? When you see my face, does something inside of you light up? When you see me and when you are in my presence, does something inside of you come alive? Or are you just so caught up in the things that you've done religiously and religious duties in my name? Listen how he follows up from verse 22. In verse 23, he says, And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Imagine Jesus is at the gate of heaven, and you come in, you're like, Yeah, baby, man, eternity with God. No pain, no sin, no burdens. And, and you get to heaven, and you get to Jesus. And Jesus looks at you, and he says, Who are you? I'm sorry, I, I, I know Jimmy, oh, he, he's good, <laughs> Jimmy's good. I know Mary, Mary, you know, I, I know her. But who are you? I never knew you. Those four words are enough to send chills down my spine. Those are four words I never want to hear Christ say to me or, or to any one of us in this room. I never want to hear Christ say that about any of us, but look at what Jesus is saying here. Feel the gravity of what he's saying. He's saying God doesn't care how much you do for him. 
but he does care deeply about how much you know him. He doesn't care how much you do for him. Rather, his primary, most deepest concern is, do you know him? Do you know the Father? Do you know me? Now, this seems a little contradictory to our last point. Right? Our last point put the emphasis on the doing. We are to demonstrate, not just declare. Right? That's, that's, and here, Jesus seems to be condemning our doing. He's saying, no, it's not about your doing. And so we got to wrestle. So, so Jesus, what is it? I mean, do you, do you want us to do for you or not? And the answer is yes. Yes, he does. Yes, he does in that our words ought to mean something. And so when we declare Christ as Lord, our lives should exemplify in demonstration. Scripture speaks of this at various places. James 1, Romans 2. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus' words. He says these concepts that our lives, that the, the, the declaration of our lips should line up with the demonstration of our convictions. Right? In other words, if we have the choice of, of, of doing things in light of, of, of who God is, but it was void of any love for Jesus, he says that's a problem there. But also, yes, he doesn't want us to do for him at the expense of knowing him. In other words, if he had the choice of us doing things for him versus knowing him, guess which one he would choose every single time? I want you to know me. I want you to know me. Because let me tell you, I, I promise you this. When you know Jesus, the doing will come. The doing will follow. But we've got a whole lot of Christians who are doing a whole lot, but we don't know Jesus. Uh, that, that was the, the condemning word to the Pharisees. Jesus says, you, you look at Scripture as if they hold the, the keys to eternal life. You're, you're doing a whole lot, religious activities, religious duties, but you don't know me. You don't know me right? And so there's this, there's this tension of doing and knowing that Jesus is saying, now I want you to think about this for a minute. I want you to think about your relationship with your parents, okay? I, I know that not all of you have great relationships with your parents, and, and, and that's, that's fine, but, but for a moment, I want you to think about how your relationship with them might be affected if your relationship with your folks was all based on your doing for them, Right? Now, to all my Asian brothers and sisters in the house, this was your reality growing up. Right? Like, like my, my, my life was about doing things for, that, that, that your relationship with your parents was rooted in doing for them and your performance. In fact, I remember a profound relational shift that occurred in my relationship with my father when I was a freshman in college. Some of you heard the story, and so just bear with me and relive it with me, if you will. After my first semester in college, I came home with a big old F on my grades because I never went to the class. And so, you know, I, I shouldn't have been surprised. It was on the other side of campus, and it was an 8 o'clock class. I just never woke up for it. I just never went. Now, for those of you who know a bit of my story, you know that I was never a high-achieving, straight-A kind of student. Like, it just wasn't my thing. I was a solid C student. That was my, like, C was my comfort, so a C for comfort. That's where, that's where I lived, right? C was my zone, my area. And for much of my life, I was compared to all of my other smart Korean friends who obviously were straight-A students because they were born with that gene. They're just Korean, and so you get straight-A's. That's what you do. You come out of the womb, straight-A. You know, like, it's just, that's, that's what happens. And my parents, for the life of them, they couldn't figure out why their Korean son was not a straight-A student. 
Why? Their, their son was a, a C student. Now listen, this sounds funny, and it's, you know, I'm able to make fun of myself and have fun with it because I've worked through this. But growing up for much of my life, in many ways, I've got to be honest with you, it felt like my parents' love for me as their child was highly conditional upon, upon the kinds of grades I produced in school. So if I came home with anything under an A, the message that I received was, you're not worthy of love. You're not worthy of embrace. You're not worthy of my acceptance. Right? Like, if I came home with anything under their expectation of what a good student should be, what a, a smart kid should be, in fact, that's where I came home. It felt not only unloved, but stupid, like less than. And so here I was as a freshman in college with my first F. Incidentally, my only F. I learned my lesson. Man, that, that kills your GPA. If you didn't know that already, it kills your GPA. And I come home, and my dad reams into me. He reams into me. Now, now listen, in an Asian home, you, you may not know this. Uh, maybe it's the same for you, if, even if you're not from an Asian home. You don't ever talk back. Talking back isn't even an option. Like, I, I see some of these kids nowadays, they're, they're yelling back to their kids. I'm like... Ooh, man, I would not be alive if I talked to my parents the way some of these kids talk to, talk to their parents. You just don't talk back to your parents in that way. Even if you feel like you're completely in the right, you just accept that you're completely in the wrong, right? And you just take it. And so my dad starts ripping into me. You know, he's just rattling off the same script, same script. Why are you getting these kind of grades? Why can't you do better in school? Why, blah, 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 blah. He goes down the list. And by the way, my dad's a scary man. Uh, since, since I've had kids, he's softened up like, like, light. I don't even, I don't even recognize the man. Like, it's like, you love my kids more than you love me. Like, what is going on? Right? Like, and so that, my, my, but my dad, growing up, he was a scary man. And when he unloaded, man, he unloaded. There would be times when he was just like, I mean, just fist flying, just pounding me. Like, when, when my dad got angry, it was a scary scene. And here he is, he's unloading on me. And I'm frightened. Truly, I'm frightened. Even as a... 18-somebody-year-old kid, I'm, I'm frightened. I'm sitting on the floor, and something that night snapped in me. It's like something just kind of, like, just, just snapped. And I talked back to my dad for the first time. Literally, for the first time in, in 18 years of my life, I actually talked back to my dad in the midst of his reaming me out. And the words that came out of my mouth were something to the effect of, Dad, will you only accept me if I bring home good grades? Like, what the hell is that? Those are the words I use. And, and pardon, I don't mean to be offensive, but the kind of pain that I was feeling in that moment, I wanted to say a lot more and a lot worse. But I said, am I loved based on a stupid letter? Like, why can't you just love me. Why is that so hard? And at this point, I, I, I've got tears in my eyes, I've got a cracking in my throat, and, and these are tears of pain of 18 years of not feeling unconditional love 
from one of the two people that I was supposed to feel unconditional love from. And these tears flowed, and, and these tears were mixed with a little bit of terror because I didn't know how my dad was going to respond. Right? I never talked back to him. And I'll never forget what happened next. My dad got down on the floor with me. I can never tell this story without just... Uh, he, he got down on the floor with me, and he pulled me in close to himself, and he embraced me. Now, you need to know this about my dad. My, my dad never hugged me. He wasn't like a warm, touchy-feely guy, right? Like, yeah, that's, that's just not who he was. In fact, for most of my life, my, my dad just, just kind of like stood from a distance, kind of, kind of like this cold ruler from far, right? And so for most of my life, my dad, you know, I never saw that side of him, but here he was that night embracing his college-age kid, and he said to me, you will always be my son, and I will always love you simply because you're my son. And I am sorry if I've ever made you believe anything less. Forgive me. Church, at this point, I'm a mess. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wreck because, number one, who the heck is this man? <laughs> right? Like hugging me, apologizing to me. Where's my dad of the last 18 years of my freaking life? Like, who, who are you? What are you? What are you doing here? But number two, God was using that moment to bring deep healing into my life and into my relationship with my dad that was long overdue. And God taught me a valuable lesson about himself that night, about God. See, friends, God is not a father in heaven who is waiting for you to prove your worth to him. Your worth, listen, your worth was proven once and for all at the cross. That's it. That's all the proving you need to do. Your worth was proven at the cross. The fact that Jesus gave his life for you is all the proof that you need that you are worthy, that you are valuable in the eyes of your heavenly father. But you need to understand, he didn't just die on a cross to just let you know that you're worth it. He died on the cross so that we can enter into a relationship with God. The fact is, God wants you to know him, and he wants to know you. And think about that for a minute. The God of the universe wants to know you. It's mind-blowing. The fact is, he's not looking for a resume He's looking for a relationship. This passage wraps up with Jesus saying these words, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Away from me, you evildoers, or get out of my sight, you evil people. The point that Jesus is making here is God is not looking for our work. He's looking for our faith. He's not looking for our work. He's looking for our faith. Now, this might sound a little bit similar to our last point, but it has a slight different nuance to it. Friends, isn't it interesting that Jesus identifies all these people who did all of these wonderful things like prophesying in his name, casting out demons, performing all these mighty works in the name of Christ. He calls them evil doers. As if to somehow call these good things that these people are claiming as good, that Jesus himself would deem as good, that he would even instruct his disciples to do, prophesy in his name, cast out demons, and do many mighty works. He told the disciples to go out and do that. And so somehow he seems to be identifying all of these good things as evil. 
Where is the disconnect here? Where is the dissonance? What is the problem here? Well, the problem was that these people thought that their good works was what ultimately saved them at the end of the day. Remember what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about entering into the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about our salvation and our eternity. He's making the point that no amount of good works will get you into heaven. You can't earn your salvation by good works. That's not how this whole Christian faith thing works. In fact, a lot of people tend to look at this passage, right? It's like, oh man, it's a heavy passage. And their main takeaway is to go home and start freaking out about their salvation. It's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, Pastor Dan said, if Jesus stands at the pearly gate, like, like I, I, I don't, I don't want to hear him say, I never knew you, but I, I don't guarantee that. And we start freaking out and questioning our salvation. And when we do that, we begin to question in this frantic way. And when we start to frantically, like, question our salvation, guess what we do? We start frantically doing more religious duties. I gotta read the Bible more. I gotta pray more. I gotta, I gotta go to church every Sunday. I can't skip a, a skip a single Sunday. I can't skip a single uh, small group gathering. I can't skip my large group gathering. I gotta stay in community. I gotta do all these things, and we end up doing more and more and more. I gotta do more of this. Or maybe some of you, it's like, I gotta do less of that. I gotta, I gotta stop drinking so much. I gotta stop partying so much. I gotta stop, I gotta curse less. I gotta do, I gotta gossip less. I gotta sin less. And all these things. I should do more of these things, and I should do less of these things. Now, friends, listen. Yes, you should. Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying like, a, like a go live in license and be licentious and just live freely however you want. Christ has set us free. We could free live however we want. No, that's not the message here. Yeah, you should not do all that and you should do more of all those things. But not because you want to get into heaven. Because none of that will give you access to the kingdom of heaven. None of that will get you into heaven. There is only one way to get to heaven and that is by putting our faith in Jesus, period. That's it. You see, Jesus isn't trying to get us to question or doubt our salvation. In fact, I believe that Jesus wants, to be sh wants us to be sure of our salvation. I don't think Jesus wants us walking around being like, am I saved? Am I not? Am I saved? Am I not? Am I going to heaven? Am I not? I believe that Jesus wants you to be sure and with full assurance know that you are saved indeed. And so he's not trying us to question our salvation Rather, he's trying to clarify the basis of our salvation. That the basis of our salvation is not rooted in our works, but it is rooted in putting our faith in Jesus. Paul put it so clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. You've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And he goes on in verse 9. He says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You see, it would be evil. It would be evil to think that we can somehow by our work earn our way into heaven. It would be evil to think that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was not enough for our salvation. That would be evil. It would be evil to think that somehow by our religious duties and our work, that we believe that our religious works was somehow greater than the gift of God of salvation. That would be evil. Which would then justify Christ's words, away from me, you evil doers. You did all stuff that looked good on paper. 
But God was never looking for your works. He was looking for your faith. He's looking for a sincere, genuine faith. And friends, I don't know about you, but the fact that I don't need to do more and try harder is good news to me. That is the, that's the message of the gospel. That is good news to our souls. That we don't have to try harder. That all we need to do is put our trust in the finished work of Jesus and have faith in him and claim him as Lord over our lives.